Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we will answer as we get our minds and heart on Jesus. Good afternoon. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. So we are in Acts chapter 25, and we're going to follow on the heels of what our brother Robert shared last week. Paul is still on trial. It has been two years since he has been held a prisoner in Caesarea, and now the governors have changed. Now it is Felix instead of Festus. And throughout the book of Acts, we have witnessed Paul. We have witnessed his unwavering commitment to his mission to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's faced numerous trials. He has faced false accusations. And one of those occasions was before Festus. And he boldly defended himself against the charges, which were three sinning against the law, sinning against the temple of the Lord, and sinning against Caesar. And now we're going to examine Paul's defense. It's a very simple defense and see what lessons can we learn from his kind of defense and what does it mean for us as disciples now here in the 21st century. We have Portius Festus, who is the newly appointed Roman governor of Judea by Emperor Nero, nonetheless. That's the emperor reigning at this time, the infamous Nero in the autumn of AD 60. Caesarea, why are they in Caesarea? That was the political center for the Roman province of Syria, and Judea was a part of Syria. So the Sanhedrin presents their case against Paul to Festus. Because on one occasion, Festus was going to Jerusalem. He heard the Sanhedrin's accusation, and they were trying to motivate Festus to move the trial to Jerusalem because they still wanted to ambush Paul and kill him. Can you imagine that? Two years had passed, and their passions against Paul were as fresh as the day that they found him in the temple that day and wanted to tear him to pieces. Now, Festus apparently denies them that favor. Maybe he wanted to appear strong. And he told them, no, you must come to Caesarea to face Paul there. And they did. And so we find ourselves here in verse 8 of Acts 25, when Paul comes before Festus and the Sanhedrin right there present, and he makes his defense. And what does he say? Something very simple. Neither against the Jewish law, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. Paul's defense is three simple points. He is not guilty of sinning against the law, against the Torah, that is the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, otherwise known as the Pentateuch. He is not guilty of sinning against the temple. Now, the temple could also stand for his local community of believers, the community at large. And he has not been guilty 
as far as sinning against Caesar, because they were accusing him that he was saying that there was another king instead of Caesar. And that's not what Paul was saying either. So the Sanhedrin's accusations were baseless because even before Festus, they were not able to present any evidence. Just false accusations, just hearsay, obviously stemming from their jealousy and chagrin. Let's examine these, this three-point defense quite quickly now, and then let's see how we can apply them. How are they applicable to us in the 21st century? So Paul says he was sinless before the law. They were accusing Paul of saying that the law of Moses was not important, that they didn't need to follow it. And constantly Paul emphasized his faithfulness in the Mosaic law. He had an impeccable conduct as a follower of God. He was a member of the strictest sect, the Pharisees, taught under Gamaliel. So he was appealing to them, and we had heard this defense before. Not quite put like he put it here in this simple three-point defense, but we already had heard how he defended himself against these accusations. So Paul reminds Festus that the accusations against him were baseless. They were fabricated because he had not violated any of the commandments or precepts of the law, and nobody could say that he did. Nobody could present any evidence against that. And so Paul's conscience, as he has said before, was clear as he lived blamelessly before God and man. Well, what about the temple? What were their accusations? They said that Paul had violated the sanctity of the temple of God. And we know the Jews were very big on that. But again, Paul affirmed many times before how he revered the temple of God. That's where the Spirit of God lived. He acknowledged his significance as a holy place of worship. And he had made it clear that he had not defiled the sacredness of that temple or undermined its purpose in any way. So despite the false accusations of bringing Gentiles into the temple, which is what he was accused of, Paul defended himself that no, he had entered the temple to worship and to fulfill his religious duties, even having received a vision from Jesus in the very temple. What about his accusations against Caesar. They were saying, oh, Paul, you say that there is another king and so that you are usurping your loyalty to Caesar. Caesar is the only king. Now, remember, Nero was the Caesar at this time. It was around 60 AD. And Paul also constantly declared his loyalty to the king, acknowledging Roman authority and never trying to usurp that authority in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. We see Paul writing in Romans how, no, we ought to obey the civil laws and pay respect and honor to the governor and the kings of the time, even praying for them. So he affirmed his commitment as a law-abiding citizen and even said that such authority that these kings had was an authority given by God himself. What more can you say in favor of Caesar when you put it that way? So Paul defended himself against any kind of accusation of treason or rebellion, asserting that his mission really was solely on preaching the gospel and sharing the love of Christ. He was on a mission of love. He posed no threat to any Roman authority, to any even Jewish authority. And so he exonerated himself before Festus, emphasizing his innocence concerning Caesar and the temple and the law. And he demonstrated the importance of living as a model citizen, respecting the governing authority. So what can we say in conclusion of his defense? 
Well, we witness his unwavering commitment to righteousness, uh, both before God and the human authorities. He was sinless in his accusation of any of these three things, and we know that it was stemming from their jealousy and their desire to really kill him. They were putting words in his mouth. And so we read here, But Festus, after he heard Paul's defense, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? So it seems that now Festus wanted to bring, wanted to do this favor to the Jews. Remember that they had asked him, Hey, why don't you bring the trial over to Jerusalem? But with ulterior motives because they wanted to kill Paul. So Festus sneakily brings this up before Paul. No relation to what Paul was saying it up. He, he was just brought it out of the blue. And now look at how Paul replies. He says, look, I'm standing right here at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. So he was trying to tell Festus, don't you recognize? Are you trying to tell me that this is not Caesar's tribunal? Are you trying to tell me that I have to go somewhere else? So he was kind of throwing it back on Festus, very, very sly way of turning things around to Festus. He says, I have done no wrong to the Jews as even you yourself know well. So he was appealing to Festus' intelligence and his observations at that time. If then I did anything wrong and deserving of death, Paul says, I'm not trying to escape death. I'm not trying to get out of these accusations by escaping death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Wow, what an appeal he makes in this case. This is quite a contrast, isn't it? Because it was not too long ago where we see Paul giving up his freedom in order to appease, it seems, or to appeal to the consciences of some of the Jewish followers. He didn't want to cause them to stumble. And we see Paul giving up his freedom or his right at that occasion. But now the tables have flipped. We see Paul now appealing and say, hey, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I have rights, and you want me to go to a different tribunal? No, I appeal to Caesar. That's like a saying, I'm taking it to the highest court of the land. I'm going to the Supreme Court with this. And so we see now Paul using this defense, because really, what was his motivation? To try to get justice somehow? No, we know what he wanted to do. We know the vision that he had seen in the temple was for him to go take the word to, to uh, Rome, which is where he wanted to go. And so knowing that, knowing where Jesus really wanted him to go, he says, I appeal to Caesar, which he knew would end up before Caesar. So as believers, Paul teaches us to follow his example as he follows Christ. How do we stack up? Compared to Paul's defense here and to his being blameless before these three big things in our lives, how do we stack up as disciples in our community? And so following last week's theme, how are we bearing the cross before others in our community? We're going to talk about our responsibilities as disciples of Christ before the law, before the church, not the temple anymore, but the church and before the government or before our nation. God has put us in this community to fulfill his purpose. And how are we doing that? If somebody were to accuse you as violating the law or the church or civil government, 
how would you be able to stand before that? Because right now, brothers and sisters, we're living in a time where people in society are scrutinizing those who say they are believers in Christ in as much as they were doing it back then in the first century as well. Who are these Christians? And and what are they trying to say? How are they trying to appear? They're, these church people, they're not perfect. And so a lot of people are scrutinizing the church. Oh, yeah, you say you're a Christian and you go to church. Well, how are you doing in your community? You know, how are you helping other people? And so people are asking those hard questions. And we are before a tribunal of sorts in our day and age. And we always have been. And so how do we stack up before these three things, which I believe Paul brings up as something important for us to be able to follow? We are called to live a life that reflects our faith, that brings glory to God. Ultimately, that is our goal, to bring glory to God in all that we do, with all of our being. Our responsibilities extend beyond our personal relationship with God, and they also encompass the interactions that we have with the world around us. We are going to be either a good influence or a bad influence. And whether you think you have influence or not, you're going to be one or the other at some point in your life as you interact. And so we're going to explore these three crucial areas that Paul brought up before Festus, in which we also have significant responsibility as followers of Christ. What about before the law? Have you ever wanted to read the Bible in plain English, a language that you can actually understand and follow? Well, there is a translation like that called God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nations Mission Society. This is the only translation of the Bible in English that follows a dynamic equivalent translation philosophy. It makes the Bible very easy to understand and it flows very naturally in the English language. You can follow along my podcast where I read to you from God's Word Translation for one whole year. You can search for the podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast reader. Search for God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nation Mission Society. You can also look it up under my name, Pedro Gelibert. What responsibilities do I have before the law according to the scriptures? Well, according to Romans 13 verse 1, I have to respect the law and not just respect it, but be obedient to it. As Paul himself writes later on. And you wonder why he was writing this. Now it makes sense, right? Because we're looking at his life and acts and now he's writing these things. Well, he lived them. And so he's writing them out of experience and out of inspiration at the same time. He says, let everyone submit. Paul was not a hypocrite. He says, let everyone submit to the governing authority, since there is no authority except from God. Now, many of you may have problems submitting to one president or another, or to one governor or another, and you might appeal to his character, you might appeal to his moral integrity, and you might not be wrong in your judgments against those things. But have they any relevance concerning this passage? Because we know Nero was kind of crazy, and he did a lot of things that were way far out than any president or governor that I've known of in my history. And yet Paul is saying, submit to the governing authorities because they are authorities established by God himself. This was Paul's conviction, and he's passing it along to us as well. We need to be careful how we speak 
about these governing authorities to others because how other people hear you talking about your responsibility to governing authorities, they're going to make a judgment about you. And are you going to stand blameless? As Paul says, I am blameless when it comes in terms of the law. Of course, he was referring to the law of Moses. We're not under the law of Moses anymore. So I made this applicable to us by talking about the laws that we're under today as people living in this society. We demonstrate our love for God, really. One of the ways that we love God is by respecting and obeying the laws set forth by our government. We don't talk trash about it. Easy to do, especially on social media. We don't give an appearance that we're above the law, but instead we're law-abiding citizens. If you want to do good, if we're people focused on doing good and serving and being ambassadors of Christ, we don't really have to worry so much about the law because, as the Bible even says, the law is there typically for those who are self-seeking and abusing, for those bent on sin. So that's what he means to say to respect and obey the law. But also to have integrity and honesty. That's one responsibility that we have before the law. Proverbs 21 verse 3 says, Doing what is righteous and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. As disciples, we should be known for our uprightness, treating other people with fairness, showing honesty in our dealings. We should pay our debts. We should pay our taxes pay our obligations without complaining and being thankful that in all these things we are blameless because we have a clear conscience when it comes to things like that. Not cheating on your taxes, not trying to uh, borrow from Peter to pay Paul. In other words, take out a credit card to pay another credit and things like that that really just get you into more trouble. No, we don't want to be people who do those things. We don't want to be people who create debt, but instead seek to eliminate it. As the Bible says also, not to let any debt remain outstanding. That is one responsibility that we also have before the law, believe it or not. And thirdly, engaging in justice. I love Micah 6.8, which says it clearly. He has told each of you what is good. Micah summarizes these things that the Lord wants us to do here in acting justly, loving mercy, and some translations like this one say to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with our God. We are called to be advocates for those who are marginalized, for those who are oppressed, for those who maybe don't have a voice. How are you helping those in your community that maybe are marginalized in some way or another? How are you being a voice for them in getting them justice, in acting justly, or in showing mercy to them, or being humble as you bring them close to the knowledge of God. Also using your wealth to help those in need by providing food, by providing shelter for those who don't have it. Are these the kind of things that if the community, if somebody blames you for something against the law or for being unfair, or for being unkind, how would you stand before? Would you silence them with these works of righteousness that you're doing? This is one way that we're going to stand blameless before our community, before the law. What about before the church? That's the second area that Paul was accused 
of being guilty against the temple, of course, in his day and age. But that translates to us because we don't go to temple anymore. If anything, our bodies are the temple of the living God. And collectively, we are the household of God. So the church really is the temple now in this 21st century. And we have responsibilities to what we call this collective community of saints, the church, before God. God wants us to be actively participating, active members in the church, as it says here in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And notice what one of those responsibilities in the church is, is to provoke love and good words, to provoke one another. Some versions would say to spur one another on. The idea there between provoking and spurring, it sounds negative, doesn't it? It sounds like, oh, I don't really want to be doing this because when I provoke somebody, that means like I'm, I'm poking the bear with a stick <laughs> or, or I'm hitting the, the wasp nests with a stick. You don't want to do those kinds of things. You know, that's provoking. But in this case, he's using a negatively connotated word and tying it with some positive actions. What do you think he's trying to say there? What do you think the Holy Spirit is trying to say there? That, yeah, you know, sometimes it takes some pressure. We need to put good positive pressure on each other, even knowing if it's going to make somebody uncomfortable. That's one of our duties here. That's one of our responsibilities. I am so thankful for the brothers that throughout the years of me being a Christian have provoked me, have jabbed me on the side with the elbow, have spurred me on towards love and good works, and have told me honestly, hey, brother, you need to cut that out. You need to get on with the program, bro. You need to wake up and have told me in very sobering words things that I needed to do or needed to stop doing. And I am thankful for that because I'd rather receive that slap on the cheek than God later on hitting me with a two by four on the side of the head. I know what that feels like as I had both kinds of discipline happen to me. <laughs> and I say, you know what? It's, I'd rather listen. Let me listen really closely to what my brothers are saying because God's two by fours can be quite painful. And so this is, how are we doing in this responsibility, brothers and sisters? Are we provoking? Are we making sure we're provoking? Or are we turning into snowflakes and saying, oh, well, he's going to feel a little stressed if I tell him this, so I have to be very careful. I have to walk on eggshells. You know, we have to be careful because there is a spirit of snowflakiness in our society nowadays. And we have to be very aware of that. And we can't fall for that. That's one of Satan's trickeries. And we have to stand up and lovingly provoke one another towards love and good deeds. Okay? That is part of our responsibilities as a church member. Not neglecting to gather together as we are here as a church. And in those days, even the Hebrew author was saying some were in the habit of doing. You know, during COVID, some got into the habit of not gathering together. And saying, well, I'm gathering together digitally. Well, it's not really the same thing, is it? We ought to be together in front of each other. And I'm glad that we're getting that message. And coming out of that COVID mindset. Coming out of that habit of being comfortable and at home. And turning on a tablet. Now, of course, I'm not talking about those who are in a situation who have to do that. I'm not saying that. And you know who you are. You know if you can be here and if you can't. That's between you and the Lord. For for those of you who can, 
This is part of our responsibility. Because guess what? I need you to lovingly provoke me. I need that from you. And maybe you need that from me too. The next responsibility that we have is to be servant leaders in the church. And this goes along with provoking each other. Notice how how Peter puts it here. He says, you've been purified by your obedience to the truth. So show sincere brotherly love from one another, from a pure heart. Love one another constantly because you have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but the imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Linked to that is what Paul also says in Galatians, carry one another's burdens because in this way you fulfill the love of Christ. John will say it this way, love one another because love is from God and everyone who has been born of God knows God. But I love how Peter puts it here. He says, love one another deeply. Some versions would say deeply, constantly. This implies that kind of love that is going to cause me to provoke you, not just play nice with you, not kiss you on the cheek and say, hey, how you doing? But no, slap you if you need to be slapped on the cheek, right? That's the kind of love that we're talking about here. Because you know what? Love hurts sometimes. <laughs> Actually, most of the time it, it hurts. But it's good. It's a good hurt because it moves us forward. That's what real love does. As the Proverbs say, an enemy multiplies kisses, but a good friend hurts you, you know? The blows of a good friend can be trusted. This is the kind of love that comes from the denial of the flesh. I'm not able to love you in this way if I'm always looking out for me, if I'm always worried about me, if I'm always worried about what you're thinking about me, if I'm always trying to get a great impression or, or cause to make a good impression on you. I can't love you then the way God tells me to love you if that's my concern. Because I have to die to self in order to love you in this way, love you deeply, love you purely. And I have to look at myself and say, I've been purified. Have I been purified by the obedience of the truth? Am I loving my brothers and sisters in this way? Or am I still too concerned about me? This is the love Jesus shows to the church. This is the love that we celebrate every single Sunday when we take the Lord's Supper. A love that is self-sacrificial. Jesus died to self and reminds us that that's what we did too when we became Christians. When we took that pledge and were baptized into the Wari grave of baptism, what did we do? Didn't we die to self symbolically? And as we remember that, we're remembering, yeah, you know what? I, I died to self. I'm not here for me now. I'm here for you because God's taking care of me already. I'm, I'm taken care of. I'm good. Now I'm trying to take care of you. And so out of that mindset, Peter says, we've been born again now. This is what the real kingdom of God does. Not getting angry at each other about silly things. Oh, you offended me. Oh, you hurt me. Yeah, you know, that's going to happen. Get over it, right? Let's get on to the business of provoking each other to do love and to do good works and stop massaging ourselves over and over again. Yeah, there's a time for that, but there's a time to get moving and get going forward because Satan is not going to put up with that. You know, he can see through all that and he plays with your mind 
When you're too focused on the sensitivities and not focused on the greater mission that we have as a church. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. You will find the link listed in the description of the podcast on your favorite podcast app. With your support, I will continue to produce authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me to do. So we have to get going and learn how to be peacemakers that way. Because that's the way to be real peacemakers. And this, this, is, this is what's going to show that indeed you've been purified by your obedience to the truth. That you are an instrument of God. That it's being used in this way as a servant leader. As someone who can wash one another's feet. It takes stomach to do that. It takes decisiveness to wash one another's feet. And it takes humility to do it as well. Because you might not be liked after that. But that's okay. You're in good company. And before the church, last but not least, when it comes to unity and reconciliation. Ephesians 4.3 says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit to the bond of peace. It's going to take a lot of effort for us to overlook the things that Satan can try to use to divide you against each other. And to say, oh, and to look at the negative things happening. Because you know what? You don't have to look too close to find the negative things. You don't have to look too hard to find them. Okay? I'll be the first one. You know, I can say 10, 10 or a hundred negative things about myself. It doesn't take too much to do that. But it takes every effort though to keep the unity. That it takes a lot. And God is hoping that through the Spirit, we do that. Because it does take part of us. If we weren't responsible for this, then this passage would say, don't worry about it because you have the Holy Spirit and you're all going to be united and you're going to be good. But that's not what the Scripture says. It says, no, no, it's going to take every effort on your part to be in that bandwagon with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's going to help you because we all have Him. But we're going to have to make sure that we also make every effort. We need to actively work towards resolving conflict, the conflicts that we have in our hearts, the little mindless and, and stupid things, really, that our hearts come up with and that could easily offend one another. Are we nursing those things or are we making every effort to say into our heads, you know what, that doesn't really matter. So what if the brother stepped on my toes? So what if he crashed my car? You know, <laughs> what is at stake here? It's the eternity. It's our souls. We can overlook small things. Brothers and sisters, we do it in our homes, don't we? We overlook a million things a day. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't be married. Right? And, and our children would hate us. But we have learned, we're learning in our homes to be peacemakers. And to say, you know what, that battle, it's not worth fighting. Because there's a bigger battle that needs to be won here. Right? And it takes every effort, doesn't it? <laughs> not to get suckered into 
the little meaningless battles. It really does. But when your mind is focused on being a peacemaker and making every effort to keep that unity, oh, you're going to be walking that awesome, glorious path. I love how James puts it. He says, God gives grace, greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want grace? Be humble. Be a humble person. It's not about how much you can control, because you can't barely control yourself. But it's, it's about how much you surrender. And that takes every effort. But guess what? I am, I'm inspired because when I do that to the best of the ability God has given me, guess what I get as a reward? More grace. And I need it. <laughs> I need all the grace I can get. So I'm going to try really hard to humble myself because I don't want you to lift me up. That means nothing. I want God to lift me up. So stop leaning on your own understanding, brothers and sisters. Stop leaning on your perspective. It's funny to me to see people make such quick judgments on things that they were not even there to witness, on things they know little of, and they're so quick to make a judgment about this case, that case, the other case, and they don't even know anything. Brothers, we cannot be people who are of quick judgment. We have to be people who are of quick mercy. That's the first thing that needs to come. Stop rushing to judgment. Stop leaning on your own understanding or perspectives because you don't know it all. We need to grow a lot, but we're not going to unless we humble ourselves and understand that, you know what, I need God's perspective here. Because I may be blindsided at this moment. And I don't want to make a judgment at that time. I want to pursue peace. I can't think that my opinion is the only one or the right one. How arrogant is that? All I can say, it is written. That's the safest thing to say at any time. Be willing to forego your opinion if it's not accepted at the moment. Don't get all offended because I don't like your opinion. I said, oh, okay, that's nice. No, we're not going to do that. Don't get offended. That's silly. Forgo it. Let's work together with consensus. Because if you believe the Spirit is guiding us and not your opinion, then you're going to surrender. And we're going to all come together to do the right thing. What about government? Well, one of our responsibilities before government is to pray for them. If you're not praying, if you, the Church of Christ the priests, the holy priesthood, if you're not praying for your governing leaders, for your legislative representatives, for your presidents or presidential candidate, if you're not doing it, how in the world do you think things are going to get better? To what other power are you going to attribute that things are going to get better in your society if God gave you the responsibility as his holy priesthood to pray for these people. And yet what I hear is sometimes a lot of negative talk and no prayer. Well, how do you think it's going to go? If it's your responsibility as God's priesthood to pray for these people. You don't like something that's happening? Well, are you hitting your knees before God 
Or are you complaining about it? Because one of the biggest ways to affect change is no, not by going to the voting ballot, but, but I do recommend you do vote. Hey, God gave you that right. Don't waste it. Go and vote. Vote intelligently. Vote prayerfully. Pray for these people, man. They need it. And you are a royal priest. You got God's ear on this. Use it. <laughs> Use it because that's what the Spirit instructs us here. I urge you, it's an urgent thing to make petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving for everyone. But then he specifies for kings, for people in authority. It's funny, right? How God has given authority to people that may not know him, but you, he has given you greater authority because you've got his ear on petitioning God on their behalf. Isn't that something? Isn't it funny how God works it out that way? Because that's how it's going to work. Through prayer, we're going to seek God's guidance, his wisdom for those in authority to respect their role, seek their well-being, even if you don't agree, especially if you don't agree with them, to pray for their well-being, for their decisions. Man, what a great responsibility we have as a church to be lifting up these people in our prayers. Make sure you're doing that. God expects that. That's one of the responsibilities we have before our society. Submission and contribution. I kind of touched on this before. Paul says, pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes, uh, tolls, respect those you all respect, honor those you know, honor. As disciples, we need to be exemplary citizens when it comes to this, fulfilling our obligations, actively even participating in things in our community. What a great example when you participate in, let's say, a community cleanup. And you show your face there because you're invested in your community. And you want to make your community better. And you meet other neighbors who are interested in doing that thing. What great doors of opportunity will be open when you show you care and you present yourself blameless before the government when it comes to things like this. And last but not least, kingdom influence. Paul says here, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, you were once in darkness, but now you're the light of the Lord. Walk as children of light. The fruit of light is good. It's righteous. It's true. Testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but rather expose them. In Thessalonians, Paul will say something similar, like let us stay awake and self-controlled. Let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love. He'll say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. And so as people of light and salt, we're supposed to go into our community like you put salt on, on your food. If, you, if the salt stays in the shaker, it's not doing its job. But when we are sprinkled on the community, meaning making contact, then you will affect your light and your salt on these people who need it. And you might be thinking, well, I don't feel too confident about that. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Well, God has equipped you to do that. And if anything, in this church, we've talked about things like this for long enough to know what we need to do. And if you don't know, pair up with somebody. Go out with somebody in your community. Ask some brother or some sister, hey, how do you do this at work? Or how do you do this at school? Because that's how you're going to show that you're interested in being this agent of change that is needed in our society.
Salt and light works on the face-to-face level, one-on-one level. That's how salt and light work. So as disciples of Christ, we have significant responsibilities before the law, in the church, and in our nation, in our government. How do you stack up when compared to Paul's blamelessness in these three? Is there work that you need to do? Are there attitudes that you need to shake off in order to really stack up, in order to really align yourself with God's agenda here? And if you do, then it's a great time to come and pray about it with the elders and the leaders of the church and lay down these things that are getting in your way at the feet of God. Because God can't wait to put you out there with the right mindset to effect change. He's counting on you to affect change in your prayers and in what you do in your community. But you got to get up and you got to go do it. It's not going to happen sitting down. It's not going to happen through Zoom. (laughs) Not going to happen through social media either, I think. But it's going to happen to -to face-to-face, one-on-one, contact one by one. That's how it's going to happen. That's how people Get one for the Lord. And brothers and sisters, that's how the first century Christians made a change to the point that there was an emperor that became a Christian and it changed things. Some may say that a lot of problems came after that. We'll talk about that when we get into our next Bible class topic. But for now, this is what we got to do, brothers and sisters. It's not hard. God has equipped you to do it already. Let us come and pray together and and show God that we are willing, ready, and able to do this. God bless you. Have a good afternoon.